Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke a child told me recently, which was a, a hamburger and a hot dog walk into a bar and the bartender says, Hey guys, I'm sorry we don't serve food in here. Not good. Not a good joke. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got Not a Good Joke from filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. It was sort of charming, though. It was charming, so that'll help break the ice. We'll talk to him later about his new film. Also, we'll chat with comedian Carol Liefer, rock music writer Lisa Robinson, and Andy Daly, star of the new Comedy Central show Review, lists his favorite guinea pigs. Plus, we learn about ping pong diplomacy and snort horseradish. <laughs> and that's not a euphemism. Nope. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A security flaw in one of the most popular encryption programs on the web is raising alarms. Growing optimism that search teams are honing in on the remains of Flight 370. The day after the Huskies men's team knocked off Kentucky, Connecticut hammered Notre Dame to win the NCAA women's title. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Stacey Vanek-Smith. She is a senior reporter at the public radio business show Marketplace. Stacey, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? So I'm going to be talking about video game violence. Now, normally we think of violence associated with video games as having to do with the violent content of the video games, right? Of like course. Crushing Duty, candy. Grand yes. Theft Auto, crushing the candy. <laughs> exactly. Yep. But as it turns out, the reason that people become violent after video games has nothing to do with the content of the video game. That's according to a study from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Apparently, the reason that people get violent after video games is that they are frustrated because they cannot win the video game. That is true. Oh. I don't play violent yes. video games. And after Candy Crush, I do want to punch my fist through a window. Exactly. It's That's insane. in fact called rage quitting. This sounds like literally rage against the machine. It, the machine being <laughs> yes, the Xbox. It totally is. They, they talked to 600 college-age participants. And apparently after playing a video game, no matter what the content was, once they hit their skill ceiling... They freaked out and became violent. Once the game got really hard, basically. And it doesn't matter if you're shooting people or hugging Care Bears, I guess. So I'm curious, what kind of uh, nonviolent games caused violent reactions in this experiment? Well, they went a little old school. In fact, Tetris was one of the ones that caused <laughs> violent outbursts. Well, but actually, the, just the music on that game could drive you to violence. <laughs> right. Just Kalinka over and over again. That's true. And, like, why do you never have the long stick when you need the long <laughs> stick? And then when you don't need the long stick, like, seven of them right, in guys, a row. Guys, I don't play video games, and now I'm feeling aggressive. <laughs> I'm feeling you aggression see? towards both of you guys. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but then what I also find enraging as a gamer is that kind of condescension. It's a no-win situation. It is a no-win situation. The only way to win is not to play. <laughs> yeah, take your ball <laughs> and go home. And read a book. Stacey Vanek-Smith, thank you so much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now time for cocktails. This is when we tell you something that happened this week in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our increasingly famous history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1971, the sport of ping pong changed the world. And that may seem unlikely because it was. Michelle Philippi tells the story. In the spring of 71, the U.S. and China were not best pals. 
The Cold War was on, and at the World Table Tennis Championship in Japan, the Chinese team was told to not even speak to Americans. Chairman Mao said the team was to imagine the ping pong ball as, quote, the head of your capitalist enemy. But that changed when U.S. player Glenn Cowan accidentally stepped on the wrong hotel shuttle and found himself alone with the entire Chinese team. Champ Zhang Zedong couldn't bear to not speak to him. It seemed impolite. So they chatted through an interpreter, and Zhang even gave Glenn a gift, a silkscreen print. When they got off the bus together, the press was amazed. Pictures of Zhang and Glenn smiling like best pals flew around the world. And a few days later, the U.S. team was invited to play in Beijing, the first American group in China in over 20 years. Now, China had secretly been hinting to Washington they wanted better relations, but the invite was public proof. Ten months later, President Nixon made his historic trip to China, made possible by Zhang and Glenn's ping-pong diplomacy. So that was the history. Now for the drink. I am speaking with Logan Browse. He is appropriately enough an American working in Shanghai, China. He's a bartender at the Strip. And Logan, what cocktail did that history inspire you to make? Okay, what I did was I uh, made up a cocktail called Sherman Wow, <laughs> which I thought you know. Wow. Exactly. So what I got is a uh, green tea, some honey. Ice, and then that's the Chinese side. Right. And then the American side, because China and America, I have bourbon, Maker's Mark bourbon, which isn't technically legal here in China. Really? Why? Really? Yeah, is it outlawed? It's, import. it's, just, it's just not imported legally in. Wow. Where, where did you get it? Are you a criminal? Uh, from a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> I, brought it, I brought it in with me. You know, they ship fake DVDs to the U.S. We, we, we smuggle in, uh, you know, booze. Excellent. But green tea and... and uh, green tea and whiskey. I know it sounds weird, but they actually really taste good together. It's one of those drinks you mix it together and I, like, because um, it's trying, everything's more communal when you drink. Yeah. So we don't drink individual drinks here. We drink for a whole table, a whole group. So you basically you make a big jug of this and it's an easy drink to sit and drink with your friends. And like the U.S. ping pong team, the drink itself would be an ambassador of goodwill. It's true. It's true. Especially if you have enough of them. So, Brendan, I was thinking, table tennis, thought relations between China and the U.S., right? Yeah. So, if we sent pro tennis players to Russia right now, mm. uh, they could probably smooth over the whole Crimea thing <laughs> the, All right. overnight. I can see Venus Williams with the blue helmet <laughs> heading over there. What a diplomat she would be. A Nike swoosh on the back. Let's get on it, UN. Uh, and, folks, you can make a diplomatic mission to our website. Our recipes are all there. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actor Andy Daly. If you've seen a funny show on TV or listened to a comedy podcast in the last decade, there's a good chance that he made it funnier. Yep. He routinely plays sweet-looking people with dark, strange souls on shows like Eastbound and Down. Here he is to tell us about his new project and to share a particularly gonzo list. Hi, this is Andy Daly. I am uh, the star of a show on Comedy Central called Review, which is a show about a guy named Forrest McNeil who is a reviewer, but he doesn't review food, books, or movies. He reviews life experiences that are suggested to him by his viewers. 
Whether it's what's it like to get addicted to drugs, what's it like to have road rage, or something incredibly dumb like what's it like to eat 15 pancakes. May I have an enormous amount of water, please? You got it. Whatever it is, he will take it seriously and he will do it full out. I have now eaten 10 pancakes. And on the bright side, I can see the light at the end of this disgusting tunnel, but it has now been 45 minutes since I started eating, and the pancakes are no longer hot. Forrest McNeil belongs to the great tradition of people trying to immerse themselves in an experience and report on it from within. So here's a list of characters, real people, and fictional characters who also throw themselves into unusual situations and make themselves human guinea pigs. And for a list like this, you have got to start with one of the great participatory journalists, Hunter S. Thompson. I am actually going to go with an article that he wrote in 1970 called The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. What it is is he and Ralph Steadman, his longtime illustrator, this was the first time that they worked together, went down to cover the Kentucky Derby. And he knew what he was going to find there. Outdated, southern jerks, rich and drunk human monsters. And his mission was to mix in with them and to find out what that lifestyle is like from the inside. But what ends up happening is that he becomes a bigger monster than anybody that he's there to observe, dragging poor Ralph Steadman along for the ride. And it's hilarious. And it's a statement about how somebody in the 1960s was looking at an old-fashioned convention. It's a counterculture figure stepping into something that feels timeless and intentionally old-fashioned and looking to upset the apple cart. So then second on the list is sort of a parody of participatory journalism. This is a sketch from an episode of Saturday Night Live in 1984. Eddie Murphy was guest hosting, and in this sketch, he gets made up as a white man and goes undercover as a white man. A lot of people talk about racial prejudice, but talk is cheap, so I decided to look into the problem myself. It's sort of the reverse of the book Black Like Me, where white man went undercover as a black man in the South. It is an absolutely hilarious sketch. You know, one of the things he does, he rides a bus, and it's all white people, except for him, dressed as a white man, and then there's a black man. And as soon as the black man gets off the bus, a cocktail cart comes out, and music starts playing, and they start having an awesome party on the bus, and he realizes this is what's happening when black people aren't around. And I think we all know, everyone knows watching it, that it's not uh, accurate, but uh, as a way of just sort of exploring assumptions, I think it's very effective. The problem was much more serious than I'd ever imagined. I think that probably also came out around the same time as Spinal Tap, which also had a, a major impact on me as a mockumentary. And something that all the best mockumentaries do, that we definitely try to do on review, is to adopt a tone of sincerity and seriousness when what you're exploring is ridiculous and absurd, and those two things play off of each other incredibly well. And then finally, I want to talk about the time-honored trope in movies and books for a long time now, which is the scientist who experiments on himself, making himself a human guinea pig. Lots of examples of that in science fiction and in literature. And my favorite example, though, has got to be the television series, which ran from 1978 to 1982, The Incredible Hulk, starring Bill Bixby. 
unlike a lot of examples of that, where the scientist is uh, propelled by arrogance, has been, you know, kicked out of the academy and is showing them that he can do it. Bill Bixby's character, he's coming at it from the most sincere and pure (laughs) point of view. He is a guy whose wife died tragically and he did not have the strength to save her. So he's trying to make himself stronger. And through a mix-up with the machines, that's just not his fault. He ends up being turned into a sometimes monster constantly thwarted by evildoers and also just the foibles of life. Like, there's one episode that I strongly remember where he's putting coin after coin into a payphone and he keeps being told, you, you haven't put money in and his eyes go wide and that's it. He's, he monsters out. And he hulks out. Please deposit 25 cents for the first three minutes. I don't have 25 cents! He's a pure-hearted person. He's a, he's a sincere, good person in the world who just made one terrible mistake. And I think in that way, uh, he's similar to Forrest McNeil, who really just made one massive mistake, uh, which was taking on this television show to begin with. Guest list from Andy Daly. He produces and plays the starring role of Forrest McNeil on the new TV show Review. It airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. on Comedy Central. All right, coming up, I inhale the scene at a sidewalk horseradish kitchen. Yep. Plus, indie filmmaker Jim Jarmusch tells us what this trio has in common. Roy Orbison and Hamlet and Zorro. No, they don't walk into a bar. Stick around and find out the answer when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comedian Carol Liefer answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, music writer Lisa Robinson sings the praises of television. Hmm. But first, here comes our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. In 2005, his film Broken Flowers won the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival, but he's been an indie film pioneer for decades, making quiet, philosophical movies full of cool vintage music and often starring icons like Johnny Depp and Jack White. We have not been called yet. It's a crime. He is also known for putting his own twist on classic film genres, and his new film is a good example. It's called Only Lovers Left Alive. It's about two modern-day vampires named Adam and Eve. They have been alive for centuries, and they sadly feel civilization's days are numbered. The film is full of dry wit, but when I spoke with Jim, I asked what led him to such a dark theme. Wow, I guess the current state of the planet. Um, General enough for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my attraction, it is, they are vampires and it is a vampire film, but it's not a monster movie. Of course. It's, it's a love story that they happen to be vampires. And my attraction to the genre was this kind of historic overview that they could then have if they were alive for a thousand years or, or whatever. That really was appealing to me, the insights one could have and not be in denial as it seems we are at at present. I do really feel that the current state of the the planet ecologically is is as though we've gone to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you're dying of cancer and we just go home and watch TV. But there you go. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate the serious tone of the film, but that that is a pretty grim sentiment for one of your films. Well, you know, I don't really feel that it's grim. I, I feel that the things they do talk about are true, and they're not denying them. But they are appreciators of so many beautiful things, both natural things and 
gifts of expression that humans have given us and that's what they they live for. I mean, those that is their kind of blood supply in a way. To appreciate beautiful pieces of music, to appreciate strange vegetation, to appreciate cloud formations and these vampires in our film, they are snobs in a certain way, but they've had the chance to think about and absorb all these things. They've had the luxury of that. Yeah, and in a way, your films, in addition to telling stories, are also kind of assemblages of music or people or places you find beautiful. And there's one scene that almost literally does this. Adam is gazing at a wall, and he's hung portraits of his heroes on the wall. I'm assuming they're your heroes as well. And they range from Edgar Allan Poe to Iggy Pop. What do all those folks have in common? Well, they are uh, humans that contributed something to the strongest things that humans have, which is our imaginations. I mean, that really is my personal religion, you know, because these are the yeah. things you cannot destroy the human imagination and everything comes from it. All science starts with the scientist imagining a thesis, imagination is stronger than armies and banks full of gold, you know, and yeah, prisons. Yeah. And, you know, they, they can't be contained or killed. You have, you have this aesthetic. And among certain people, myself included, it is, this aesthetic is like the definition of cool. Did that come as a surprise to you when you first started making films? And does it now? Yeah, you know, I uh, first of all, I don't analyze my films and I don't look at them once I've finished them really? again. I, I let them go. Yeah, so these things always surprise me. And uh, being called cool <laughs> is a little, uh, I don't quite know what it means. Yeah, the, yeah. The one I don't thing either. That, I couldn't define it, but it just <laughs> is. But I, I appreciate it, I guess. I mean, I don't, I use that word myself in a positive way. I don't, the one thing that really drives me crazy, though, I guess, is the word hipster recently. <laughs> like, what? wow, what? because I seem to be called a hipster a lot, and I'm like, what? what is a hipster? I, I think it's something... Square people use to call people that aren't straight, you know? So, I think it's actually oh, okay. something hipsters use to call people who are weirder than them and, <laughs> and insult them. Yeah, maybe. It seems insulting. But I, I just follow my instincts. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to, you know, be a poser or I just no, am, my, I am myself. And I got a lesson very early on that was very valuable uh, around the time of one of my first films, Stranger Than Paradise, which is black and white. Yep. And I, my hair started turning white when I was a teenager, gradually. Mm, sure. And someone wrote, you know, basically, what a pretentious jackass. <laughs> the guy makes a black and white film, wears black clothes, dyes his hair white. I mean, who does he think he is? And it was very valuable because I realized mm. from that moment, hey, man, I started wearing black clothes as a teenager because of Roy Orbison and and Hamlet and Zorro or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my hair is genetically turning white. I happen to love black and white films. So, wow, I, I never have to pay attention ever again to what anyone says about me yeah. personally. So since then, people can call me whatever they want. <laughs> I'm not trying to engender any of this hipsterish behavior. Or whatever you, know? you want to call it. It's just my style. So, gee, sorry if it's too hip. I don't know what to say, you know? By the way, I love that constellation, Hamlet, Zorro, and Orbison. That's an amazing <laughs> you know? trio. 
Oh, I should put Johnny Cash in there, too. There Let's make it a, a foursome. The Men in Black. If only we could have yeah. seen that band perform. Yeah. Uh, we have two questions that we ask everyone who does this segment on our show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Well, I think this is maybe too general, but it's a question I get a lot from like journalists, which is, where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> <laughs> Which really I is so what a perplexing question, you know. If you could answer that, you'd just be grabbing ideas. Yeah, it's like I buy them. Do you have any good ones <laughs> I could sell? I have twelve dollars here, you know. You'd have fifteen films by the end of the year. So that one's always kind of really perplexing. Like where do you get your ideas from? Although I once had a great this do I have time sure. to Give you a longer answer? Sure. I had the great uh, experience of sitting at dinner between Tom Waits and and Neil Young the night before oh Neil God. inducted Tom into the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And really, I was sitting between them. And you don't I wish know why you're cool? It. You don't know what, why people call you cool? Well, I think I'm lucky. I mean, what kind of circumstance? What was I doing there? But they were talking about songwriting and where their ideas came from. And Tom was relating it to fishing. And Neil was relating it to rabbits coming out of a hole and how you had to wait for them and try to grab one, you know? <laughs> and Tom's like, well, it's a you know, fish going by. Some of them aren't even very good, but you got to throw some back and maybe you'll get one. Maybe you get none, you know? <laughs> but they went on and on with these beautiful metaphors, metaphors of, of where their ideas came from. It was, it was classic. And you can just use theirs next time somebody asks you that. Yeah. Those will work. steal theirs, yeah. You kind of just answered our second question, which is to tell us something we don't know. I now know how Tom Waits refers to his creative process. Well, I, one thing, though, Tom Waits's metaphors probably change by the hour and get more and more <laughs> amazing. Jim Jarmusch, his new vampire film is called Only Lovers Left Alive. And Brendan, Jim also told me something I didn't know about vampires. That they're not real. <laughs> it was terribly disappointing. Mm. Uh, but no, he says in researching this movie... He couldn't find any depiction of a vampire with fangs until a 1957 Mexican film called El Vampiro. Wow. That is a true story. Bela Lugosi didn't have fangs? His Dracula did not have fangs. Man. Yeah. He was so good we thought he had fangs. <laughs> That's thespianship. And now, time to eavesdrop. Veteran music writer Lisa Robinson, now with Vanity Fair, has rocked with the Ramones, rolled with the Stones, and landed major interviews with artists from Michael Jackson to Jay-Z. A new book gathers together her backstage stories. Today we overhear her tell one. Hi, I'm Lisa Robinson. I've been a music journalist for a very long time. My new book is called There Goes Gravity, A Life in Rock and Roll. And one of the stories in the book is one night when I went out with Lou Reed. One night in the mid-1970s, Lou Reed and I walked into CBGB's, the so-called punk rock club, on the Bowery in New York City, just before television was about to play. As far as I was concerned, even though Patti Smith, Blondie, the Ramones... Talking Heads became more famous. Television was the best band that ever played at CBGB's. I 
Tom Verlaine was the guitarist for television, and it was just amazing. He would play for four hours, and you just sort of went on this journey with them. You would start to listen to a song. It would go on maybe for eight minutes, pretty unheard of then, especially in a bar. Tom Verlaine thought he had more in common with John Coltrane than he did with any rock and roll musicians. Tom was very protective of his music. He didn't want people ripping him off. And uh, Lou knew that people had ripped him off, and he was very protective of his music. Both of them were paranoid. So Lou and I walked into CBGB's, and Lou was carrying a cassette recorder. We may have been doing an interview. Honestly, here's the problem with trying to write about the 1970s is that nobody remembers anything the same way. But that's how I remember it. Lou was carrying a cassette recorder. And Tom muttered to me, what's he doing with that tape recorder? Lou wasn't taping him. Lou didn't need to tape anybody else. Lou wrote the greatest rock and roll songs of all time, I think. But I suggested that he ask Lou to take out the cassette or the batteries. Lou handed him the cassette. Then he said to him, You'd make a lousy detective, man. You didn't even notice the two extra cassettes in my pocket. Tom was not amused. Okay, he said, then give me the machine. I'll keep it in the back for you. Lou handed it over. Then he looked at me and burst out laughing. Can you believe that guy, he asked? I said that there were many musicians who would be thrilled if they thought Lou Reed wanted to tape them. Of course, years later, I wondered if Tom would be mad had he known that I gave Bono and The Edge television tapes I made nightly at CBGB's. Of course Tom would have been mad. I mean, just listen to U2's guitar sound. Lisa Robinson, her new book is called There Goes Gravity, A Life in Rock and Roll. It's out April 22nd, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media, where we are definitely recording this. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, every year around this time, mm-hmm. a man wearing a gas mask appears on a sidewalk in Manhattan's Lower East Side oh, no. and starts spraying the neighborhood with toxic fumes. Oh, the annual Breaking Bad Festival. <laughs> Close. About. Passover. Oh. <laughs> Water Whitefish. Next week, <laughs> no, next week, observant Jews will hold the ritual feast known as Seder, and during the meal, they're required to eat bitter herbs. That's right. As a half Jew, I know it well, horseradish. That's right. Eat horseradish bitter. is the most common bitter herb, so in the run-up to Passover, the pickle guys, which is a traditional pickle shop, start grinding horseradish right in front of their store. I stopped by to chat with Alan Kaufman, the owner, and I started by asking, what is horseradish anyway? Horseradish is a root. It sort of grows in the ground like a carrot. And with the Jewish religion, it's a bitter herb. We use it for Passover to uh, shed tears for the suffering for the Jews when we left Egypt. When you're getting horseradish, is there anything you look for? Well, when we buy our horseradish, we try to find the biggest and fattest roots. We try to find them with green tops on top, not dried off, so the green is nice and fresh, so you know it wasn't laying around anywhere. And most of the time, it always has a little bit of mud around it, so we know it's freshly picked. It's the dirt that makes it... Well, that way, you know, if it's dry and it's, there's no dirt or mud on there, you know it's been sitting around for a while. We want the hottest, so we go for the, the fresh ground. So the fresh stuff gives you the most heat? Yes, yes, yes. We get our horse rash from St. Louis, Missouri. Why is that 
especially good horseradish? Or? That's the best horseradish you get. It's horseradish that comes from uh, Mississippi or Missouri because it's grown in the Mississippi River, right by the mud. So it's the best horseradish you get. So horseradish is like mud. Yeah, it likes mud, yes. It likes that moisture. So you're, you're the pickle guys, and behind you are barrels and barrels of great pickled things. Why horseradish and pickles? The old-timers that started it in 1910, they would fill in, I guess, uh, with horseradish, because at that time they only had like three or four barrels of, of items. Uh, today we got about 35 different types of uh, barrels here. So in the, in the holiday time they would make Russell Borscht, which is what we also do, and then they would make, they'd make the horseradish for Passover. So people don't have to go in their house, grate the horseradish, and make everybody in the house cry. Yeah. Horseradish. 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 You want to try a piece? There you go. Tell us what you think. Damn. Horseradish. <laughs> That'll clear your sinuses, won't it? Damn sure will. <laughs> so, so do a lot of people come up and ask for samples? Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people don't believe it's hot, and then when they eat, they go, "Wow, that's hot!" So tell me what's going on here. We got so we got right now. Chris is going to grind up some horseradish. We have some peeled, cleaned horseradish roots. He's going to put it into our horseradish grinder, and it's going to grate the horseradish very fine. I guess would be the only word. And is this specifically made for grinding horseradish? This is actually made for grinding cheese. Now Chris has a gas mask on. Is that because he's a psychopath, or because that <laughs> he's a little psycho anyway? He's going to grate horseradish for 10 hours a day for two weeks straight. And, you know, it's the only way to keep him sane from not running up and down the block and ripping his clothes off. Is this going to make me cry? You bet it is. Chris, is this going to make me cry? Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. It smells good. And I'll take a whiff. Take a whiff of that. Oh, there we go. Oh. See? Yeah, it's working, huh? <laughs> now you know why we used to dance with this. <laughs> oh, it was like uh, World War One in the trenches there. That's right, mustard gas. All right, so he's got a bowl of it here, and it looks like Parmesan cheese, but it's moist. And now he, now you're putting it into, what's going on here? He's got to put it into a, a, another bucket. Uh -huh. That's our, the bucket we mix it in. He's going to add white vinegar to actually it's apple cider vinegar for, for Passover. We use apple cider vinegar. And then he's going to mix it up till it's a, sort of like a mashed potato consistency. And then he's going to put them in jars, bottle them in jars. So the apple cider vinegar because that's kosher? Kosher for Passover. Apple cider vinegar is kosher for Passover. If you're going to make it all year round, you use just regular white distilled vinegar. And isn't this whole process like rabbinically supervised? Everything here is uh, under the supervision of Rabbi Shmuel Fischelis, which is also Rabbi David Feinstein's son-in-law. And uh, he comes here at least twice a week to check on everything. Does he wear a gas mask? He doesn't wear a gas mask, but he doesn't stay long. <laughs> we chase him out with the gate with the horseradish. All right, so then, so you put it in there, and how long does it sit inside the... Well, once he makes it like a mashed potato consistency and he puts it in the jar, it can stay in that jar to four to six months and still have a lot of heat. And they add either beet juice to it to make it red horseradish or we use apple cider vinegar to make it white horseradish. Is there going to be a flavor difference with, uh, between the red and white? Yes, between the red and the white, the red will be a little sweeter. Most people use red horseradish for gefilte fish because that way you can see how much horseradish you put on the gefilte fish. Interesting. If you use the white, you really can't tell. Are you tired of horseradish? Like by the end of this season, do you not touch it for another year? The fresh ground we only make once a year, and every year I look forward to making it. And every year when I start making it, I try and I go, wow, that's hot. And then 10 minutes later, I try to go, wow, that's hot. 
by the end of this season, I'm pretty much done with horseradish. I don't want to see it no more. Like I've cried my bitter tears. You're like, I'm definitely not going back to slavery in Egypt. Yeah, yeah exactly. It'll never happen. Not in the matzah. I don't know how those guys did it for 40 years in the matzah. <laughs> now you know why my people are unhappy. <laughs> So Rico, true story. After that chat, I bought a quart of sour pickles from right. Ellen, and when I got home, I noticed a vinegary scent emanating from my backpack. Oh no! <laughs> the no. quart broke, so now I have a pickled notebook, pickled pens, and a pickled iPad. Well, at least they're <laughs> preserved. That's right. For summer. <laughs> uh, folks, don't worry. The rest of our show is airtight. You will hear from comedy writer Carol Liefer and the musical project known as Lavender Country when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song from Tune Yards. And coming up, we speak with Patrick Haggerty, the man who wrote the first gay country album back in 1973. Before I was a human. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's only human to make mistakes. Nice. And that is why we have a weekly etiquette lesson. Yep. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and we invite a person of substance to answer them. This week, that is Carol Liefer. She's been nominated for four Emmys for writing TV comedies like Seinfeld and Modern Family. She's the co-executive producer of the show Devious Maids on Lifetime, the second season of which premieres on April 20th. And this week sees the publication of her latest book. It's called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. And Carol, welcome. Thank you. I'm so impressed. You got every one that of those yes, yeah. credits correct. We do our research. So this book, it's a memoir about how you rose to the top in the boys' club of stand-up comedy and of comedy writing. But it's also an advice book about succeeding in any profession. Yes. What is maybe the one essential rule of success that you find people rarely live by? Um, I think it's being tenacious. You really do have to have very thick skin, let things roll off your back. I mean, my back is practically Teflon coated by now. <laughs> that really, to me, is the big secret. Keep moving yeah. forward. That, that's how we got you on the show, Carol. By I, being, I'm telling by being you, tenacious. <laughs> I our, said our no, point. no, no, and yet here I am. Here you, Thank are. you for saying yes, <laughs> and you can sign my Teflon back later. <laughs> and it's true, of course. There were, I mean, you had to be tenacious when you started. There were very few women in comedy writing. There, what? yeah, there were. But I always saw it as an advantage because I knew that being different that way would pique the audience's interest. And I tell that, I advise that to women in whatever business they're in, use that to their advantage. But isn't it, it would have been seen as a disadvantage, I think, at that time, that people wouldn't have maybe wanted you to be in a room of all dudes writing? Well, you know, the great thing about women is we make up 50% of the population. <laughs> what? Uh, yes, fun fact for you. <laughs> but um, our perspective is always going to be different. So in my view, it's always going to be needed. So it gives you an advantage when you're working on comedy. Because exactly. You're... Certainly on Seinfeld, pitching the idea, Elaine thinks the mirrors at Barney's are skinny mirrors. I mean, it was doubtful that a man was going to pitch that idea <laughs> yeah. because that yes. happened to me. So in that way, I think women always have to use what makes us different to our advantage. All right. Well, you give advice in the book. Are you ready to give some to our listeners? Absolutely. All right. Let's do it. So our first question comes from Liberty in Denver. And Liberty writes, is there a good way to ask people to remove their shoes before entering your home? 
I thought a shoe rack, complete with some shoes, yet enough space for more, would send the slightly passive-aggressive message, (laughs) but it doesn't. (laughs) Why do people think it's such an imposition to ditch their kicks? I feel like a jerk every time I utter, oh, would you mind leaving your shoes by the door? Help. Well, I think, yes, the passive-aggressive won't work with that. I think you just have to simply ask people. And I've been asked by people, would you mind removing your shoes? And mm. Did you mind? I, I don't. I mean, if that's how they want to roll. See, I mind. You, you do, huh? Yeah, because it's, it's first of all, it's like, what about the hygiene of your feet? You came from the gym earlier that day or something. You didn't have a chance to change. And all of a sudden, you have to disrobe. And that's, <laughs> that's going to be embarrassing. True. Makes you feel like you're on a security line. <laughs> and yet, you are in their house. But they're my host. Like, I'm the guest. Shouldn't I be, like, the customer's always right kind of thing? Like, yeah. No, I don't know. I think the guest is never right. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, no. a little pearl guest of wisdom there. Guest has to defer. So. I do have to say, most of the continent of Asia would have a problem with you not taking your shoes off in their homes. Well, they haven't invited me over. But all if right. they come to my house, they can take off their shoes all they want. It seems like you, it could be your, should be your option to take off the shoes. Um, yeah, I have to say to Liberty, no. Okay. Right at the door. Okay, so yeah. no passive-aggressive, aggressive-aggressive. No, aggressive-aggressive. All right. Yeah. All right. And there if they don't like it, they can take a hike with their shoes. Uh, there you are. <laughs> They'll need it. Thank you, Liberty. Here's something from Patrick in Columbus. Patrick writes, I have a friend who floods my inbox with spammy messages about puppies with chain letters, etc. I don't want to block them entirely, these emails, because some of this person's emails are relevant and personal. How do I correct this behavior? Hmm. You know, this has actually happened to me. Spam? Well, too many emails from somebody. Mm-hmm. And what I've done, because as you can tell, I'm not for the passive-aggressive approach. <laughs> You're for the, yes. Aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like to send them a nice email that, like, I love getting emails from you, but I have to be honest, I'm so swamped these days mm-hmm. and getting so many emails. If you wouldn't mind just filtering out the really super important ones, I would so appreciate it. Nice. Okay. Plus, that That's makes you seem like fair. you're super important and busy and getting so much email. Yes. Well, what, and what if their friend's like, no, this is super important. This kitten is eating ice cream <laughs> with a panda. Well, then you just have to block them. Yeah. You know what? I see a twinkle in your eye as you're t- telling us this answer. Who is this person? Was Jerry Seinfeld sending you these emails? Yeah. No. You You're being spammed by him? No, he's very no-nonsense, okay. uh, non-puppy-sending, you know, puppy sending, kitty-sending <laughs> Okay, friend. he's all business? Yeah. All right, Patrick and Columbus, there you go. Hope that yeah. helps, Patrick. And that wasn't even aggressive. I like that. It was just straightforward. Yeah. And a little self-aggrandizing. So, so this next question comes from JD in San Francisco. The question is, as I'm sure you know, some comedy clubs decide where you'll be seated. I'm not a fan of being put near the front. It's like there's a sign in my forehead that says, talk to me. Things get more nerve-wracking, and it's hard to enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. Any tips on how to claim a seat outside the stage lights? Oh. Tough, right? Well, not really. I mean, why wouldn't J.D. just say to the person seating, I, d- I do not want to be up front. And yeah, if that's they what go, I think. That's the only place we have. I'll go to the 1030 show. I think, Carol, actually, you have a unique perspective on this because you spend a lot of time on stage doing stand-up. Yes. Do you engage the people in front into your I normally – you like to, and people don't realize this. It is the great thing about stand-up that you can personally engage with people right in front of you. Yeah. But has someone ever been frightened and kind of – I mean, because I feel like I'm pretty confident, but some nights you just don't want to be part of the act. Yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of times you don't, and a lot of times you want people to be quiet and enjoying the show, and they can't wait to get in the show. (laughs) Throwing up anything and everything. (laughs) Hecklers. Yes. I I had a gentleman who was doing a very funny little voice in the audience heckling me made me so mad. And I said, well, if you want to come up here and do a better job, 
job. And then he said he couldn't come up because he was handicapped in a wheelchair and the funny voice was coming oh from a voice box God. because, yes, he had Goodness. lost his larynx. Oh, so. yikes. No. Did you just walk off? You're like, drop the mic. That was basically like, okay, sorry, <laughs> folks. Good night, everybody. That's tough. That's like comedy kryptonite. The one situation <laughs> yes. where you should not yeah. be tenacious. Just give up. <laughs> Carol Leifer, thank you so much for telling your audience how to behave. Oh, I hoped I helped. Comedy writer and stand-up comic Carol Liefer. Her new book is called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. And she's also executive producer of the lifetime drama Devious Maids, mm. which I'm pretty sure is a show rife with etiquette dilemmas. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> and folks, if you have a question about Devious Maid etiquette or non-devious, non-maid etiquette, we would love to hear it. <laughs> what about etiquette for non-devious maids? Them too. Anyone and everyone is invited to email questions to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Lavender Country is considered to be the first openly gay country album. It was written by a man named Patrick Haggerty back in 1973. Only 1,000 copies of the record were pressed, and it has since become a curio, familiar mostly to record collectors. But that's recently changed, thanks to Paradise of Bachelors, a small record label out of North Carolina. They've recently reissued Lavender Country, and it has received rave reviews, Here's a clip from the album's title track. There's nothing left but holes in your weary sexist role. I trade them old PJs for goodwill negligee. Y'all come out, come out, my dears to lavender country. Y'all come out and make yourselves to home. Patrick Haggerty, welcome. Why you? How did you end up being the person who made the first gay country album? In a word, it's probably my dad. When you're in the country and it's 1955 and you're a sissy and the whole world knows you're a sissy, it really helps a lot if your dad loves you and has your back. (laughs) It really helps. I just cannot describe to you how much... That helps. And your father was a sharecropper on a dairy farm in rural Washington, and that's where you were raised. It's probably not the most progressive setting. What do you think made your father so accepting? I haven't a clue what enlightened my father. It was probably his love of children. He raised his younger brothers and sisters before he married my mother, and there were eight of them younger than him when his parents died when he was 20. Mm. Then he married my mother, and he had 10 more children, and I'm number six out of the 10. By the time he got to me, he was pretty seasoned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah, very seasoned. So it sounds like your upbringing gave you the confidence to put out Lavender Country. Tell me about where the idea for the album came from and how it came to be. Well, the early days of gay liberation were tied up in public education a lot. I know it sounds boring, but it really wasn't. And it was really what was necessary. I mean, we needed to educate. First, we needed to educate ourselves because we didn't know who we were and we didn't know what we were doing. And we also needed to educate the public and, you know, get our message out. This Lavender Country idea, music, the people who were around me and doing the gay, gay liberation movement with me noticed, you know, that I could write lyrics. And the first song was the uh, Back in the Closet. And it kind of, Back in the Closet kind of took off with my peers and they encouraged me to write more. And then the energy got generated within the community to write 
produce and distribute a gay album. I'm back in the Was the idea to kind of send a message to folks who maybe didn't have as enlightened families as you did? or We were really talking to ourselves. I guess that's one of the reasons why the, why the album came out so pure and unadulterated and uncompromised was because I wasn't attempting to convince Nashville <laughs> to buy gay country music because that was ridiculous, at the, particularly at the time. So it allowed us and me to say what we wanted to say unfettered. Waltz and Will was soft and sweet The way he waltzed was too iffy For a psychiatrist to think was fitting So they said, hey son, we think we should sneak you a slug A raw manhood, the state hospital's just the place to get one they call him up, we're sicky. They hurt him to group therapy. They lock him up at night so he don't escape. And if they hear any gay talk, a sizzle of electroshock keeps his fantasies in fascist shape. What did you think when you were approached recently about reissuing the album? <laughs> That's even hard to talk about. Listen, I was living with my husband in Bremerton, Washington. I'd been singing old songs to old people in retirement centers and Alzheimer's units hmm. for the last 10 years. I was happy. I was content with my life. I was not pursuing a record contract, and I wasn't doing anything active with Lavender Country. And I didn't know anything was going on. Somebody put one of the songs on YouTube and somebody else picked it up and then they went to eBay and bought a used copy of Lavender Country and realized what it was and they were hooked up with Paradise of Bachelors, which, by the way, is not a gay site. It's a folklore site. Perfect. Folk music and, and even some Perfect. modern music, yeah. And the, before I knew anything at all, before I even knew somebody had posted a Lavender Country song on YouTube, they had offered me a record contract. It's like <laughs> unheard of. Like, who gets that, right? <laughs> well, it clearly made you happy. Why is that? Because this album is a couple of things. It's a message, uh, but it's also an album of great country songs that you wrote. I was happy for two things. One, I was happy that the movement had developed to the point and the lesbian gay movement had accomplished enough so that the world was ready to take in Lavender Country. Because nobody wanted to listen to Lavender Country 40 years ago. It's very, very difficult for most people to even try and listen to it. And now a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't gay, a whole mm. lot of people want to hear Lavender Country. And that doesn't say anything about Lavender Country. It says something about the extent to which the culture has changed. Mm. And to have lived long enough to see that, being one of the first out on the street in Stonewall and to live long enough to see the entire 
world open up to what Lavender Country was trying to say? That's very heartening, right? Yeah. That, yeah, it's very heartening. That's a victory for you, man. It's a victory for me. It's a victory for all of us. Whether we're gay or straight, it's a victory for everybody who doesn't want to be a bigot. Waking up to say hip, hip, hooray, I'm glad I'm gay. Can't repress my happiness ever since I tried your way. Patrick Haggerty, the singer and songwriter behind the album Lavender Country. A reissue of that album is out now on the record label Paradise of Bachelors. And we've got a bonus story from Patrick. It's about his dad, glitter, cow dung, and the moment he learned to be comfortable in his own skin. You will get goosebumps, and you'll find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. Morning time, feel so fine when I'm hanging out with you. And, folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, the infamous Billy Eichner, a.k.a. Billy on the Street, comes by to insult us, excuse me, instruct us <laughs> in etiquette. But nothing he says will phase us because Scarlett Johansson will also be joining us next week. That's true. Tune in for that. Meanwhile, please know Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Our interns are James Delahousey and Esther Mania. Brittany Martin does digital stuff. Engineering assistance this week from Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Meryl Garbus is the woman behind Tune Yards. She spins beautiful songs out of vocals, loops, beats, and bass. Their album Knick Knack comes out in May. Here is a song from it. It's called Water Fountain. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And uh, why are you putting on a gas mask? Happy Passover, dude. Wait. Oh, that's hot. <laughs>